I woke up on Saturday morning, I looked at the Google Analytics and saw something like 500 or 600 simultaneous visitors to our website. It just hit a point where it just started growing. You're listening to The Growth Show, a podcast that uncovers interesting stories and advice on growth from every corner of the business world. Hey everyone, thanks for tuning in to this episode of The Growth Show. I'm Kip Bodner, CMO at HubSpot. I'm very excited to be joined by Yasha Kekas-Wolf, the CMO of Mozilla. So Yasha, I think my first question here is, you know, Mozilla has come out in support of ad blocking, yet ad blockers can have a big effect on the ability to track effectiveness of marketing, right? And so in your job, you're, you're the CMO of Mozilla. How, how have the work you've been doing, how have you seen that been impacted by the, the movement of ad blocking? Yeah. So, so just to be totally clear, Mozilla doesn't support ad blocking. What we have done is we've come out and proposed content blocking principles. And this is basically the way that we'd love to organize the community of people that think about advertising and think about content creation and think about kind of website development and management um, to kind of hack on the web. Right? And the kind of basic principles that we support are the idea of content neutrality, and that's that any kind of software that's created that does any kind of content blocking should focus on addressing the potential user needs. Right? It's like performance, security, and privacy, instead of blocking specific types of content, such as advertising. So that, like, that distinction is particularly important for me, and it definitely flows into the way that I uh, will share how we think about as a marketing organization, ad blocking in particular. The second principle is this idea behind uh, transparency and control. And that's that content blocking software should provide users with transparency and meaningful controls, right? And and that's pretty critical. I think one of the things that has failed for users across the internet generally is their access to transparency and their ability to control the way that their information is shared back and forth. And the, the third principle is this idea of openness and a big idea, but uh, fundamentally block, blocking and the idea of blocking, content blocking, should maintain a level playing field and shouldn't block under um, the same principles regardless of the source of content. So publishers of other content and other content providers should be given kind of ways to participate in, in a big open ecosystem instead of being placed in a permanent penalty box that you know closes their content uh, from access to other people. So the kind of content neutrality, transparency, control, and openness are fundamental to our position around content blocking, but, but we don't actively support ad blocking. Uh, why, why this is all important, it, it really relates very much to the way that we operate as a marketing organization. Like you have a choice out of the gate to develop marketing programs that use data in in the way that I would describe as ethically, and those follow generally the same principles that I just walked through. As an advertiser, how can I make sure that I am being completely transparent to the users that I'm trying to attract, uh, right? How can I let them know the kind of information that I have had access to in order to find them? How do I let them know kind of transparently what kind of information I'd like to collect from them and kind of give them the ability to transparently control that? And, and kind of the idea of openness kind of fits into all of that as well. Just, just be very clear about what you're doing with information to users. So our, our marketing organization 
takes a very principled view into the way that we run any programs. And ad blocking, of course, plays a role into some of that in some capacity. But when we think about the types of technologies that we use, when we think about the types of places that we would put our advertisements, and we think about the types of data that we would use to drive where those placements go, um, we really try and stick to this idea of being very transparent to users. And, and that allows us to operate in a way that we consider to be ethical in the collection and usage of user information. So it, it does change the way that you work. Uh, and I, I can say this definitively coming from other organizations where we didn't have these exact same views. Um, it makes us, uh, it allows for us and kind of helps us make decisions around the types of technologies that we will use. As an example, we don't use retargeting technologies. Um, we don't use any uh, advertising targeting technologies that collect and maintain third-party user data uh, without user's consent. Um, so, so we make some decisions there, but it definitely doesn't mean that we can't be effective in the way that we operate as a marketing organization. It just means that we change some of our processes to use technology and data differently. Yeah, and one follow-up on that. You mm -hmm. talked about, you know, being principled in your marketing. And I'm sure there's some people out there thinking, oh, yeah, you know, I'd love to be principled, but I have to be successful. You know, I, I have to get the results that I need to get. You know, at HubSpot, we think, you know, of inbound in a way of doing marketing in the right way, but also uh, an effective way that matches, you know, we've found really good results when, when we have lined uh, our marketing with what the buyers need. So talk to me right. about being principled and also being effective. Well, we don't have an option to not be effective, right? and that's, that is the fiduciary responsibility of any marketing organization. If you spend funds variable or fixed uh, on behalf of the organization to try and attract new users, like you have to be effective. Um, the, the big difference is just how we have a discussion at the upfront about the types of data that we're going to collect and the way that we're going to use the data that we do collect and the way that we're going to express it to our users. The reality is if you put some constraints on yourself that allow you to operate principled, all of the same practices that you guys at HubSpot are so awesome with can still apply, absolutely can still apply, um, right? To the idea of collecting information, using that information to make decisions, to make those decisions quickly, uh, and to make sure the decisions that you're making quickly are impacting the business, those all line up in the exact same way in a business that operates like ours to a business that operates like yours at, at HubSpot. So, so I don't actually believe it's any different. And I say that from a kind of very specific experiences outside of Mozilla and here at Mozilla. You just restrict a little bit of types of data that you're collecting. It doesn't make you less effective, and it actually doesn't really hamstring you. No, it, it doesn't. I think what it does is it forces you to focus, and it forces you to keep the customer or the prospective customer top of mind when you're thinking about your marketing strategy. Well, you said it right there, right? You used the magic F word. Like It is about focus, and it is about focusing on the user. That is our responsibility in any marketing organization. At Mozilla, we take that unbelievably seriously. We have to do what is in the best interest of our users. If we do that first, we can find ways to be impactful and effective on behalf of the organization. So to follow up on that, tell me, you know, one of the things I imagine all marketers have to do and imagine is especially true for you in your role is thinking about what's going to be the next big thing. What's, what's going to come that's going to give us some undue leverage. Can you tell me a little bit about how you think about identifying new opportunities and maybe tell me about a time that it went really well or maybe it didn't go really well? Yeah. So uh, the, the thinking about new opportunities is something that we all should be forcing ourselves to do. right? And, and I say force because it really is an unnatural uh, kind of set of 
situations that you need to put yourself in to find those new opportunities. I think our general want is to find some consistency and repeatability, and that isn't always the best way um, to find those new opportunities. I, I think about kind of searching for opportunities, new opportunities, in really three different ways. And these are all within the context of creating leverage, and this is within the context of creating leverage for an organization like Mozilla. Um, the first is trying to identify kind of new types of technologies that are going to potentially create leverage for us as an organization. And, and generally speaking, the way that I think about this is to try and find kind of technology areas that have started to become mature, um, and those that are uh, kind of matching them on the maturity side and finding the kind of new and emerging technologies to sit in the middle of that. Let me give you an example. And this isn't specific to Mozilla, but, but just a kind of an, an idea, um, and I'll, I'll share with it in the context of one of the last businesses that I worked with. Uh, so in, in the world of kind of email, uh, we've known email as a kind of technology platform for marketers for many years now, decades plus, and, and the tools and the services have become quite mature. Over the last decade, seven or eight years, and you guys are definitely a big driver in this, the idea of workflow kind of being added into email, right, uh, adding in kind of customer segmentation, and then workflow to allow nurturing started to uh, kind of grow as a very mature industry as well. So you have these two kind of industries that while they're complementary, they've been different. Kind of workflow, um, B2B, kind of nurture and nurture automation, and the other side, consumer kind of segmentation and email. The challenge that both of those types of technologies have really been trying to solve for, at least in my opinion, is helping the business understand better the segments that they'd like to message to. Right? It may be at a one-to-one -one level. It may be at a tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands level. But that segmentation is actually the, the critical kind of uh, end value that I think these types of tools uh, ultimately help us get to. That being said, neither of these platforms, although they're very mature, have done a fantastic job of of identifying segments that are valuable, not in a very meaningful way, at least not that I've seen. And so when I see two industries that have very mature technologies and services like marketing automation and email, like I'm looking for new technologies that are emerging that are starting to add value into both of those spaces because they're very similar and complementary. So as an example, we've seen over the course of the last couple of years the idea of kind of actual applied predictive analytics up in your guys' neighborhood, the lattice engines of the world. You've got a handful of other companies that sit in that space. But kind of new and emerging leverageable technologies start to show up when you have these two mature kind of categories that sit on either side of them. So I'll pause there and see if that resonates with you, and then I'll jump into a couple other things that I look at as well. Okay. No, that's uh, that's very helpful. I, I think one of those things that you're talking about in terms of finding the gaps is really what you're talking about in terms of things that people are really adopting that it seemed to be effective in the market, seemed to be an effective way to reach people. Uh, and then how do you find the gaps of how do you make those techniques better uh, is fundamentally, I think, what you're saying. And it seems like you're talking about predictive engines and everything. Generally, audience segmentation is really, really hard. As somebody who thinks a lot about it, it's really hard to get audience segmentation right because a lot of it's focused around data and the data that you have about uh, folks. And again, that comes back to your ability to, to track data and, and the kind of the point of view of Mozilla to be fair and transparent around all that stuff. So, Yeah, um, yeah so, so find the gaps, a great way to frame it, right? I, I think about that on the consumer side as well. So if you take out kind of the technology that you're looking to deploy to create leverage for the organization, you're really looking at kind of consumer trends. Um, similar concept, right? Looking for the edges there. Or, or, or looking for the gaps um, or finding the edges where they overlap, kind of a, just a different framing for it. And an example there is if you're looking at the consumer world, 
there's obviously very popular consumer technologies and consumer channels where, again, in the context of a marketing organization, you may look to find people who are interested in what you're doing. So take a, an example like Facebook. So Facebook has grown to the size that it has in large part because it served a lot of really fantastic consumer needs. That being said, over the course of the last five, six, seven years, there's been this very interesting kind of secondary sets of discussions that are starting to become more and more relevant around how do I control my information better? Like Facebook got into a bunch of heat several years back about uh, the way that they introduced changes in the privacy policy. They've become much better at it. Uh, but this walk kind of for more control over personal information in a world where something like Facebook exists is becoming more and more new. As a marketer, we start to see channels for consumers that serve just this specific need show up in very creative ways. Snapchat is an amazing example of that. Snapchat is a communication tool. It's relatively competitive to Facebook. And its primary value when it began uh, was in serve of a need that many people within the world of Facebook were asking for, kind of this idea of controlled communications uh, about the idea that their information actually didn't persist over time. We know that some other things technically aren't kind of what they are from a, a value proposition perspective mm -hmm. yet. But the same is true when you start to look for the gaps in the consumer world. What's happening? What's popular? What kinds of public discourse are starting to take place? Oftentimes, you can see leverageable points of kind of new channels being developed uh, that have a relationship to those two things. So I, I think it's a kind of looking for those gaps or looking for the overlaps is a really healthy way to explore kind of what the next thing, big thing is going to be. And, and this, for me, is a lot more tangible than trying to predict out you know, 10, 15 years in the future or even five years out of the future. It's really looking at what's practically available right now. Um, within an organization, like if you kind of eliminate those meta trends, trying to find new technologies, looking for kind of new consumer channels, like you find the next best things in an organization by empowering the organization in, in meaningful ways. Marketing organizations in particular, I think, have been incredibly hamstrung in how they're able to find kind of new ideas. We've, we've got this you know, Mad Men era process that's existed in most marketing organizations and continues to exist today where the next big thing, the next big idea often comes because a handful of people went off into a back room and come out and unveil what that next big idea is. Like that, that kind of process is farcical, in my opinion. And finding the next big thing with an organization is about kind of investing in processes that allow for the team to kind of be agile, um, definitely buzzword there, uh, be transparent about the work that's happening across the organization, and be incrementalists. Like the next big thing doesn't have to show up right now because of an idea that 10 people had in the back room. You can incrementally get your way there. You just have to have the processes and organization that will help you get there. Well, yeah, and you also have to have the people. Uh, I'd interject here and say that part of how you get the next best thing and how you really grow and scale any type of company, any type of organization is you have to have the right people on board to make the right decision, give them the context they need to make the decision, also give them the autonomy to make those decisions themselves. Because where your business is really going to be made or broken is with that person who is sitting down at their desk and having to make decisions themselves. And those 20, 30 decisions they have to make on a daily basis, being able to get the majority of those right compared to the majority of those wrong is a massive difference because you then you multiply those across the different number of people on the team and the number of days in a year, it's a massive kind of cumulative effect of really great work versus really mediocre work if you don't have the I, right people in the right context. 
I think it's such a, a wonderful discussion topic. People, it sounds so trite. It couldn't be more true and more important. Like people are, are at the center of kind of your ability to find kind of the next best thing for the organization. But I really believe that when you've got people that are empowered and an incrementalist approach to the way that you evolve your team, the processes, and the technologies, the ideas, the campaigns, like that combination of people and kind of an incremental view into the way that you progress, that helps you get to the next best things. Tell me, tell me about a time when you were interviewing someone and you just knew that that was the right person for the job and just it hit you across the face and you, you were just like, I must hire this person now. Uh, well, I'll, I'll talk to you about one person in particular. Um, I'm going to use his first name and not his last name and I'm going to provide some context about his work here. I haven't talked to him before this sure. because uh, uh, he, he works with me today in Mozilla. Um, his name's Chad, and Chad um, heads up our operations team, marketing operations, which, is, as you guys know, helps about an unbelievably important role within a marketing organization. So when I joined Mozilla nine months ago, ten months ago, um, we actually didn't have an operations function within the organization. So a lot of things that you and I are talking about right now, this idea of kind of an incrementalist approach to the way that you develop the team, develop the processes, develop the technology, the campaigns – and kind of those within the organization that understand how to develop processes to do that, like uh, that didn't really exist here in a meaningful way. And so when, when I met Chad, Chad actually was heading up uh, product management uh, inside of the Firefox group. So in the product team, kind of deep in the product team, working on product management stuff. Uh, when he and I had our first opportunity to sit down, uh, the things that we ended up focusing our time on without being hyper-directive in the discussion we were happening all focused on exactly the two topics that you and I are, are talking about right now. They talked about people, capacity, like the capacity of the people, the types of people, the mix of people that we had in the organization and what we felt like we needed to add into the organization. And the second part of the discussion we had was all about the processes that we used. And that's a really critical piece for me. Like I love, from a senior leadership perspective, talking to marketers who have a passion for process and process improvement. It may not sound like it is the prototypical discussion you want to have when you're hiring senior people into a marketing organization, but, but I believe that when you've got great process, that incrementalist approach will help you find the next best thing, the next big thing. So, so that, that conversation to me was just it. Uh, and, and that kind of organically went there. So, so I actually do look for those kind of two topics to show up organically within a discussion um, whenever I'm having an interview or whenever I'm talking to somebody about potentially joining a team, either me joining their team or um, them joining a team that I'm responsible for. What, is, what does great process look like to you? There are people listening right now that are saying, oh, well, yeah, I've got process, but I don't really know what he's talking about when he says process. So great process is transparent. First and foremost, right? there, there are great processes that may exist to help achieve an end goal in many marketing organizations that no one understands. That is not a great process in the context of the way that I think about it. So transparency, kind of absolute number one. Now, let me give you an example of that, and I'm going to fall back to that kind of Mad Men era discussion as well. When you have to come up with an idea for a campaign, Many organizations will send their creative team off, maybe with somebody from the product marketing team. They'll go off into a room. They'll brainstorm for a day or two. They'll come back with an idea or two or three. How they get from going back into a room to those two or three ideas, like nobody knows. Or I say that um, maybe just to make the point. We all have been a part of those discussions, or many of us have been a part of those discussions, but nobody else is involved in that discussion at all. So when you come back with those three ideas and you present it to the rest of the organization, 
it's an acceptance meeting. It's a, I'm going to accept and get behind one of these three ideas that you guys have presented to me that I had absolutely nothing to do with. So you juxtapose that with what I would consider to be a great process, which is a brief is developed. I need to solve this for this user or this kind of user. I need to impact the business in this kind of way. And the team of people whom are responsible for executing, so that would be not just the creative team, not just the product marketing manager, but the developers, the designers, maybe folks in the customer support organization. When you get that entire group of people together, you break down the problem that you're trying to solve for into all of those kind of atomic units, and then collectively you try and solve for each one of those individual items. Like that process, being completely transparent, may get you to a very different outcome than those three ideas that happened in, in that kind of Mad Men era process. And that to me is, is really what's critical in getting to this incremental approach to making the team more successful or helping the team be more successful on behalf of the user. It's that everything that you're doing is completely and totally transparent. Does that make sense? Yeah. So you talked a little bit about you know, being transparent. Is context the same thing, or is context a byproduct of being transparent? Well, uh, context is a byproduct. It's also an entry requirement. So if I am as a team, right, we, we call the team here at Mozilla a durable team. It's a group of people that are cross-functional, that stay together over the course of several months. Right? The, the context going into solving a problem is the requirement that the team, this durable team, needs. Why, why is this a user problem that we have to solve for? What is its potential value to users? How can this positively impact the business? That's the context that has to set the stage for the team to be empowered, to be incrementalists in the approach that they take to solve that problem. When you express kind of how you can solve that problem, there are a series of tasks that you take on as a group, as this durable team. Each one of those tasks need to be transparently available So that context provides the ability to create the tasks. Those tasks then become available to everybody else in the organization, not just that durable team. That's transparency as well. The conclusion isn't really a done date so much as say, here is where we are. Here is the current impact to this user problem that we're trying to solve. That's context for how far along you have gotten to being done, if there is a done, or how much impact you're able to have as an organization. So that context is kind of at the front end, setting the stage to empower the team. The context is the availability of all the things that are being worked on, the tasks that are being worked on, both to the team and the rest of the organization. And that context is where you are in progression to solving that user problem or serving on behalf of the organization in a meaningful way. That makes a lot of sense. And it's very helpful to kind of, I think, delineate those two. They're both really important aspects to to having a great team. Let's have a little fun. Uh, so one thing that we talk a lot about here, I'd love to hear your answer to this question is if you had a crystal ball and that crystal ball could tell you the truth about either yourself, your company, your career, your industry, what would you want to know? If I had a crystal ball, the one thing that I would be focused on is trying to identify truthfully whom the three closest kind of advisors and supporters professionally I have are. Like I, I love the question that you ask because you talk about um, my company, um, the industry that I'm in, my personal career, kind of what would I want to know? Like independent of all of those things for me, like I would love to know truthfully who the biggest and most impactful supporters are for me personally. 
I, I think that many of the kind of challenges that we deal with professionally, many of the operational opportunities that we have as a business, many of the changes that are going to take place in the industries that we're in, all can be navigated with if you know whom the people are that you can trust the most, that are going to be the best advisors for you, that are going to help you through kind of whatever comes thick or thin. So five years out, I'd love to know, have I found those people right now? Are they the ones that I'm spending all my time with? Maybe it's a different set of people. Uh, it would help me navigate kind of the way that I think about my profession, the way that I think about my career, the way that I think about my organization differently. And how do you build those relationships? How do you, how do you develop those kind of core groups of, of lifelines? Uh, I think it's easy to um, make the comment of you have to invest the time and not explain what that means. Um, relationships are not transactional. They shouldn't be transactional. Um, there should be kind of sharing kind of without an expectation that something is going to be given in return and, and vice versa. Uh, that doesn't happen unless you make the investment in time. Right? And it isn't about just having somebody show up or you showing up somewhere and just talking about yourself the whole time or or conversely having them talk about themselves the kind of the full time as well. So making the investment in time to get to know people, to understand the context for which the advice they can give you when it's appropriate um, is is or is not going to be as impactful as you need to be in the things that you're working on. But you have to invest the time. Uh, it is about that hard and that simple. You know what you're totally right and I would just add to that that you never know who those people are going to be. Like you Talk to, befriend, be kind to everyone because you never know where those people are going to come from and where people are going to come into your life and make a big, meaningful difference, whether it be to your career or to your personal life. Uh, it's, you're dead on on that. Boy, it's, it's so true. Um, yeah, I, I, hopefully, um, well, our, kind of our base nature is always to be kind and uh, kind of uh, period, right? Hopefully our base is always just to be kind, but it, but it, it is uh, worth reinforcing kid. Like if you uh, are stressed out, um, if you feel like you're moving too fast, if you feel like, um, you've got too much going on, you're just too busy. Like you have to find a way to reclaim enough sanity so that you can always ensure that that base state of being kind is something that you can execute with, right? Something that you can just be. You know what? Thank you so much for taking your time out of your crazy, hectic day for managing your team and everything to hop on and chat with us for a few minutes. It's been a really fantastic discussion, and I really appreciate the time. Kip, it's been completely my pleasure. Thank you very much. Thanks, Joshua. Thanks for listening to our show. As always, we would love to hear your feedback. Tell us what you think by leaving a review on iTunes. 